Jesus, how I trust Jesus, Jesus, how I trust Him, how I prove Him more and more. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust Him. Amen. You guys can be seated. Well, happy Father's Day to, uh, to the dads out there. And Kate and I have some good news too. Kate is pregnant with number four. So, we, so we're looking forward to baby boy coming, Lord willing, um, right, at the mem- or right at the beginning of December. So... Coming soon. <laughs> we shall see. Probably, yep, somewhere, somewhere right in that neighborhood. Anyway, let's um, open our Bibles to Matthew seven, and then um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pray. Father, we just say Happy Father's Day to you. Um, you are the reason why fathers exist, um, because you are the eternal Father. We thank you so much for sending your Son into this world. We're so thankful for all that he has to say to us, and all that we have been learning in the Sermon on the Mount. We're thankful that he did not just come to teach us things, but he came to, to save us from our sins. Thank you for your wonderful plan We just acknowledge you as the God of grace and the God of mercy, the God who will judge every human being who has ever lived. You are the judge. And yet your plan was to save. Such good news. Thank you for your grace. Help us to to see all that you have to say to us today. Pray that you would speak through your text today as you always do and, and that you would Change us and help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, every week we gather as a church to hear the words of God in the text of Scripture. For these last three months, we have had the privilege of hearing Jesus' own words in the Sermon on the Mount. Every single Sunday, we've got to gather and hear what Jesus has to say. And in many ways, it has been kind of an, an uncomfortable experience. Uh, He goes places we'd rather not go. He says things that we don't want to hear, but that we need to hear. Today we come to listen to him conclude his most famous sermon. 
And he ends it no less radical than when he started. He doesn't back off one bit. The things that Jesus said on that mountain a few thousand years ago and says again to you, to I, today are not easy things. Jesus has a way of getting underneath the masks we wear, the religious performances we make, and laying our hearts bare before him. It's been remarkable too, hasn't it, how his words directly speak to our cultural moment in our 21st century hearts. The issues that Jesus addresses here aren't outdated. They can be applied to many of the current headlines we're used to seeing. So his words then to an ancient people under Roman rule come to us modern people in a democratic society now with equal force. For example, we are no strangers to sexual lust. We swim in a sexually charged culture, and he takes that issue up in the middle of chapter 5. On a personal level, all of us have been hurt by people. We've had to process past offenses done to us, some of them horrible things. On a national level, we all deal with terrorism concerns or lone shooters that elicit fear and anger. So we're not unfamiliar with how utterly radical of a call it is from Jesus to love your enemies. Each of us knows what it is to be filled with worries, to be filled with anxieties about our own lives, about the future. We may even take medicine or go to therapy to help manage its effects. And Jesus gives his antidote to worry and anxiety in chapter 6. Issues of bigotry and exclusivism, politically correctness, saturate our news media, saturate our college campuses and work environments. And in chapter 7, Jesus teases these kinds of issues out in surprising ways by calling us not to judge each other, to deal first with our own sin. And at the same time, he calls for a narrow road, an exclusive path that is hard. So Jesus' words never lack relevance. Whether we listen and then decide to turn away, whether we listen and obey, whether we just pretend to be listening, pretend to be interested, his words enter our ears with unique authority. His authority and relevance point us to the reality that the word of God in Scripture is alive. The word of God in Scripture is alive. It speaks to the past, it speaks to the present, and it speaks to the future. It also testifies to the fact that Jesus, who is the Word of God, is alive too. He still speaks. Death couldn't even defeat him. His words cannot be silenced. And as we come to the end of this famous sermon, we find him concluding with several warnings to his listeners that demand response. So the final four paragraphs contain four warnings that make up an altar call-like call to action. And so Jesus is not a professor here, just giving us information that we can study. Jesus is the Lord. He's preaching with authority. He's asking for allegiance. After he speaks of prayer and his father's desire to give good gifts to his kids in verses 7 to 12, he returns to warning mode in verse 13. In the first warning paragraph of 13 and 14, Jesus describes the two different paths. 
two different ways of life, and he warns us to recognize the stark difference between the two. According to Jesus, in life, everything is not as it seems. Everything is not as it seems. One path looks easy, has a nice, expansive gate. Another appears hard with a narrow entrance gate. Many people, he says, take the wide gate, which leads to destruction. Few take the narrow gate that leads to life. And he implores his heroes, his hearers to enter that way. Enter by the narrow gate. As if he's begging them. Last week, Levi preached verses 15 to 20, the second warning paragraph. And we heard Jesus again remind us that everything, and more specifically, everyone, are not always as they seem. He warned us of false prophets that appear to be cute sheep, but are actually vicious wolves. So Jesus wants us to be on our toes. He doesn't want us to naively listen to Every person with a platform. Gullibility is not to be some kind of Christian virtue. Jesus wants you and I to be fruit inspectors. You may not be able to tell a book by a quick glance of its cover, but with enough time, you can tell a tree by its fruit. So if someone in spiritual authority over you is claiming to be an apple tree, but all they're producing is thorns, Jesus has given you permission to get away from them to not listen to them. They belong in the fire, not on the stage. Yes, Jesus tells us not to be quick to judge other people because of our own tendency to personal pride, but he also tells us to be fruit inspectors so that we don't get trapped in an abusive relationship or duped by a teacher that's false. He's the good shepherd. He's the good shepherd. He watches out for his sheep. He lays down his life for them. So any teacher, any therapist, any psychologist, any professor, any preacher that offers us a solution that is better or equal to or less than Jesus is false, is a false prophet. Today we turn to the final two paragraphs, the last two warnings in Jesus' sermon. And he continues... He continues on this theme that not everyone, not everyone is as they seem. Wide, easy roads lead to destruction. Prophets with bad fruit are liars. And now in verses 21 and 23, not all who say they know Jesus really know Jesus. For me, these three verses are probably some of the scariest in the Bible. But they come from the mouth of the Good Shepherd. So we know it's good for us to hear these words. We know this is true in real life, so to speak, because warnings come on our medicine labels. They come on medicine labels. Isn't that interesting? We get warned as we take something to make us healthy. We get warned as we take something to make us healthy. And warnings are also instrumental in being spiritually healthy. Today's Father's Day. Whether we've had a good dad, whether we haven't, we know that every good dad warns his kids. Every good dad warns his kids. Love warns. So, as we read these verses, let's listen to Jesus love us. 21 to 23. Let's look at the first paragraph. 21 to 23. The first one that we'll be dealing with today. 
Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So Jesus warns us here that not everyone who seems to know him really knows him. A person can have all the visible glitz and glam of supernatural power and not have any genuine relationship with Jesus. And what I find so frightening about this verse is that these people think they know Jesus. They think they know Jesus. They think they are in. They have the language down. They speak Christianese. They even have demonstrations of spiritual power, but they don't know him. Furthermore, Jesus says, many will say to me in that day. So there aren't just a few that got following Jesus wrong. There's a lot of them. Top the ante even more, getting Jesus wrong, not really knowing him, has eternal consequences. That phrase, on that day, at the beginning of verse 22, makes this clear. On that day is not just any ordinary day. It's the final day of history as we know it. It's the day of judgment. It's the day that Jesus speaks of later in Matthew 25, where he separates the sheep from the goats, where he sends people to eternal punishment or welcomes them into eternal life. We think of days like 9-11, or the raid on the beaches of Normandy, or the day we were born, or the day our kids were born, as significant. But outside of the death and resurrection of Jesus, there is no day as momentous as that day, the day that will come. Jesus is prophesying here that it's coming, that it's coming. This day will come. Many will offer their spiritual accolades to Jesus. They'll say to him that he's their Lord when they don't even know him. So the weight of this is supposed to rest on us. We're supposed to feel this. One thing I'm very thankful for is my dad and his encouragement to my brother and I while we were growing up to really know Jesus. One thing that he would say to us often was, don't just know about him, but really know him. And he would preach that mini-sermon to us several times because he knew that raising his kids in a a church is not enough. Knowing Jesus himself, the real Jesus of the Scriptures, is what matters. And I know that that desire of his was likely fueled from texts just like this. So as my dad said to you, it's Father's Day, right? I get to say to you, don't just know about Jesus, know Jesus. I think our heavenly dad would say the same thing to us. He would ask us, do you know me? When I come to a hard text like this, it's helpful to ask questions. What, what are the characteristics of these people? What are the characteristics of these people who stand before Jesus? The first is that they're spiritually arrogant. They're spiritually arrogant. Notice that they're saying, look at what I did. Look at what I did. Look at my prophecies. Look at my exorcisms. Check out all my miracles, Jesus. And Jesus says, neat. Way to go, but I don't know you. 
I don't know who you are. These activities are public things. They're supernatural things. They're even akin to the signs of the kingdom and that they resemble some of the very things that Jesus did in his ministry, some of the very things we're going to move into in chapters 8 and 9 when we talk about Jesus' authority, and some of the very, very things that he calls his followers to do in their ministries. And he's saying that you can do what looks to be signs of the kingdom of heaven and end up in hell. And this shouldn't surprise us. In the Old Testament, Moses, Moses was before Pharaoh, did signs and wonders, and Pharaoh's magicians matched them. The New Testament, too, reveals that false teachers can do amazing things. False prophets can work wonders. Spectacular signs, then, are no proof of genuine discipleship. No proof of a genuine relationship with Jesus. Now, lest we think that Jesus is just going after maybe a certain church circle, that he's going after maybe charismatics, he's not. Doctrinal pride in biblical knowledge and charismatic pride in supernatural experience both can kill you. They can kill you spiritually. There are many texts, one text in in particular that Paul says, that basically says that knowledge without love is nothing. It's hollow. It doesn't mean anything. So the error of these people that stand before Jesus is that they have laid their spiritual achievements, they've laid their spiritual accolades before him as the justification, as the reason of why they should enter the kingdom of heaven. So we learn that a brain, a head that's filled with Bible knowledge, that's filled with good theology that a lifestyle of signs and wonders do not ultimately save. They do not ultimately save us. But notice something else, something more sinister. On the surface, they don't appear to be arrogant in their works. Because after all, they gave Jesus credit for them. They gave Jesus credit for them. They're attaching the name of Jesus to the works that they've done. Isn't that incredible? They're looking Jesus in the eye. And they're saying, Lord, Lord Jesus, you've seen all these things we've done. We did them in your name. The emphasis on his name is severe. They repeat it three times. This means that not only do works not save you, but works in the name of Jesus don't save you. We can do everything in Jesus' name and not know Jesus. You can do everything for the glory of God and not know God. You can be Jesus-centered and not be connected to Him by faith. So just tagging God's name or just tagging Jesus' name on everything we do doesn't make us Christians. What do they hear from Jesus? What do they hear from Jesus? What's the verdict that He renders? Three words, depart from me. Nothing is more horrifying. While heaven is the presence of Jesus, hell is the absence of Jesus. One scholar said that this statement by Jesus is a formal repudiation of the person. If Jesus' three words, it is finished, are the most beautiful words ever spoken, these are the most terrifying. And they're strong. The Jerusalem Bible translates it, away from me. 
The Revised English Bible paraphrase it, Out of my sight, Jesus damns. The last words these people experience from the very one who created them, the one who died to save sinners, the last words they hear is him sending them away from his presence forever. This is a critical point. The one who gives the eternal verdict of the destiny of any human being, the one who gives the eternal verdict of the destiny of any human being is the one who died to save every human being who would trust him. So don't think of Judgment Day as being rendered by an amorphous, cloudy, godlike figure with a booming voice, James Earl Jones, or like a sculpted Greek god behind a big, giant bench with a gavel. This is the crucified and resurrected Son. He is the judge. The judge has nail holes in his hands and his feet. That's who the judge is. So when I come to difficult texts like this, I ask questions. What are these people lacking? Where did they go wrong? I think there are two things. Number one, they lack true knowledge of Jesus. They lack true knowledge of Jesus. Jesus says to them, I never knew you. The problem with these people is not that they came to genuine faith in Jesus at some point in their lives, but then something went really bad and they fell away. And they don't know Jesus by the time they stand before him. Jesus explicitly says, I never knew you. Never. This means they didn't ever have a saving relationship with Christ. And notice how the emphasis is not so much on their claim to know Jesus, but on Jesus' claim to know them. He says, I never knew you. So really the thing that these individuals lacked was Jesus knowing them. None of us knows Jesus without him knowing you first. Paul said it like this to the Galatians. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, like he just has to fill that in, or rather God knew you. So the knowing Jesus is talking about is an intimate knowledge. It's not that he doesn't know who these people are. He's their creator. He's not seeing them for the first time. It's that he's not in relationship with them. The knowing here is one of an intimate relationship. The Old Testament describes this kind of knowledge as sexual union. Verses like, Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore a son. And if that's not obvious what knowledge he's talking about, the NIV translates it for us, paraphrases it for us. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. The point is, this is intimate knowledge. The Old Testament also uses this for God's knowledge of his people. He repeatedly says how he's known them. And so when God talks about knowing Israel, he means that he has a special and a unique relationship with them that he doesn't have with other people, groups on the earth. It means he chose them. It means he elected them, that he is in covenant with them, that they are his. As God chose and knows Israel out of all peoples of the earth, so too Jesus only intimately knows those he chose. We see this later in Matthew, a few chapters later, in Matthew 11:27. Matthew 11:27, where Jesus says, "All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father." 
And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. The Son and the Father have known one another intimately throughout all of eternity. That's where love starts. And in this text, we see that it is the Son who reveals the knowledge of God. Jesus is the only one who reveals knowledge of the Father. You don't get to know God by your own initiative. Knowing God is impossible without God. So, if you and I know the Father and if we know Jesus, it's because Jesus revealed it to us. It starts with Jesus. When he says, I never knew you, he's saying, you have never been mine. You're not in my family. You do not know my Father. The mystery of divine election is not the only reason given. Jesus shows that these individuals prove they were never his by their behavior. He shows that they show that they were never his by their behavior. And this is where the force of the text lands. These people show that they do not belong in the kingdom because they do not do the will of the king. They're not in the family because they do not do the will of the father. Later in Matthew, Jesus ties this doing the will of the father to being in the family in Matthew 12, 46 to 50. When he's speaking and he says to the people, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. This is his own mom and dad. Jesus' mom and Jesus' brothers outside want to speak to Jesus. Verse 48. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of the Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So to answer our question, what are these people lacking? Number one, Jesus never knew them, never had an intimate relationship with them. Number two, they prove it by their behavior and demonstrate with their lives that they are not a part of the family because they're not doing the will of the Father. They're committing acts of lawlessness. So the difference between the ones who enter the kingdom and the ones who are eternally separated from the presence of Jesus is whether they do the will of Jesus' dad. Again, he makes it clear in the last phrase of the paragraph when he identifies these people as workers of lawlessness. You workers of lawlessness. Though they did miraculous deeds, their behavior manifested in disregard for God's law. They could put on a spiritual show on the outside, but they had a wicked heart inside. They were more interested in following the displays of Jesus' power than the compassion of Jesus' heart. We know that the heartbeat of the law is love. So lawlessness is lovelessness. Jesus shows that there's an inverse relationship between lawlessness and love, again, later in Matthew, when he says in chapter 24, verse 12, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Lawlessness freezes love. Therefore, it's likely that these people wanted to move mountains but not walk in ordinary obedience, everyday love. 
kind of wonder if the characteristics of these kinds of people that stand before Jesus is similar to the problem with the Corinthians. Paul speaks to the Corinthian church as believers who really knew Jesus. But the problem here seems comparable, even if it's pushed to a greater degree. The Corinthians knew Jesus, but there was a similar problem. They walked in all kinds of extraordinary gifts like miracles and prophecy, but they neglected love. And remember, the famous love chapter, 13, that we hear read at all kinds of weddings, falls right in the middle of a discussion about the miraculous gifts of the Spirit. The Corinthians wanted to get on on the good stuff. They wanted the flashy stuff. There's nothing wrong with that, but there's always something wrong with lovelessness. Always. So Jesus' warning to you and I here is to remind us that day in and day out obedience to the Father by loving Him and by loving people in everyday, normal life is what matters. If you and I do not have love, we are nothing. Love warns. Let's look at the next paragraph. Matthew seven twenty four to 27 Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell And great was the fall of it. So according to Jesus, there are only two kinds of people that listen to him. There are fools and there are sages. Wise people and foolish people. And the difference between the two is what they do after they hear. What they do after they hear. Hearing alone is not enough. It's not good enough for me just to have an ear attached to my head. Christians are not merely to be listeners. They're disciples. They obey. So this image that Jesus gives us in the last paragraph demands sobering questions like the one before. What kind of person are you? What kind of person am I? Am I a wise person? Or am I a foolish person? How do I know? Jesus makes it clear that it does not make me a wise person to, be stand, to, to, to stand up here and preach a sermon. That does not make me a wise person. A fool can preach. A fool can talk. The Proverbs show us that talking is not a problem for a fool. Not a big deal. It's actually one of the fool's great attributes. Proverbs 10.19 When words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. The same book says that there's a category of person that's even worse than a fool. It says this, Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. 29.20 of Proverbs. So a quick talker, a fast talker, outranks the fool in infamy. A fool can talk and preach, and Jesus shows us that a fool can also Listen. They can hear all kinds of great information from even the greatest of people and leave unchanged. They can have PhDs in theology. They can write books on Jesus. They can memorize everything he ever said 
and still be a fool. Fools can sit in church every single Sunday and listen. They can say, what a great sermon. That was excellent. They can talk about it on the way home. They can walk away feeling upbeat, satisfied that the spiritual checklist for the week has been checked and still be an absolute fool. The Old Testament prophet Ezekiel experienced these kinds of people. This is an amazing amazing verse. I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. A scary verse. Ezekiel 33, 30-33. Son of man, your people talk about you. So this is God speaking to the prophet Ezekiel. Your people talk about you in their houses and whisper about you at the doors. They say to each other, come on. Let's go hear the prophet tell us what the Lord is saying. So my people come pretending to be sincere and sit before you. They listen to your words, but they have no intention of doing what you say. Their mouths are full of lustful words, and their hearts seek only after money. You are very entertaining to them. Like someone who sings love songs with a beautiful voice or plays fine music on an instrument. They hear what you say, but they don't act on it. But when all these terrible things happen to them, as they certainly will, then they will know a prophet has been among them. So there is a way to hear the words of God, to hear from Jesus that is nothing but pretending. Look at how that passage brings it out. You can sit before the prophet, you can listen, you can be utterly entertained and not have any intention whatsoever of obeying. This is the kind of listening that Jesus is speaking of here. Christianity is not to be a spectator sport. Church is not show business. You don't come before the Word of God for entertainment. I don't know if you've ever been watched a show on Netflix. I know you guys are too spiritual for that. But if you've done it, a week later, you probably forget almost all of the episodes. Maybe you know the main point, but you've forgotten a ton of it. We're not supposed to binge listen to Jesus. We're not supposed to just listen to Him for entertainment. Memorize it. We're to listen and to obey. We come to listen to Jesus not for enlightenment, but because there's nowhere else to go. We come as beggars in desperate need of our hearts and our lives to be realigned around Jesus. Wisdom is not less than listening, but it's more. It's listening and doing. It's faithful obedience. The wise person listens to what Jesus says and does what Jesus says. The fool walks off amazed but unchanged. Which one will you be? The image Jesus lays before us is one of a house that will stand in a storm and a house that collapses in a storm. In the land of Palestine, torrential rain could bring flash floods to what was a normally dry environment, to dry valleys and ravines. Obviously, that would cause quick, swift destruction. And in such a place, to build a house for your family on sand without care is simply stupid. It's a stupid thing to do. You may not be building a house in Palestine. I don't think any of us are. But we are building a life. Day by day, hour by hour, you and I are building your life on something automatically. What is it? Is it sand or is it rock? 
Jesus says that if you're building your life on anything apart from his words, you're foolish and all that you've built will utterly collapse. The Greek word for great was the fall of the foolish man's house built on the sandy foundation has the word mega in it, the word he uses. So we will face a mega, a massive fall if we think we can just listen to Jesus' words and not obey him. Likely this is referring to the final judgment. Flood imagery is judgment imagery. Jesus just got done talking about judgment, even in this context. So, to get back to the title of our sermon, what Jesus says about doing what he says is that if we do not do what he says, we show we are not a part of the family of his Father and we will face his judgment. But here's the turn. Jesus is not trying to create legalists or followers of a new religion that would be founded on just everything that he said. That's not what Jesus is doing here. Some of what Jesus has been doing throughout the Sermon on the Mount is busting up man-made religion. He's been overturning the false system of religion that the religious leaders in Israel were espousing. He's calling for a righteousness that's even greater than what they were offering. So Jesus is not calling for religion here. He's not calling for just walking through the rituals, obeying the sayings. He's not saying, do what I say, minus me. He's putting forth himself in opposition to false religion. One theologian who recently died is named John Webster. I found this quote helpful. What is it that Israel found so ultimately offensive in Jesus? Not in the end his call for holiness or his acts of power or even his prophecy. No, what really offended was his declaration that Israel's religious culture was itself a rebellion against God. What offended was his declaration that law was being reduced to performance. What offended was his denunciation of the whole cultural apparatus of holiness as a way of controlling God. Above all, what offended was his insistence that to be Israel, they must listen, not to themselves, nor to their settled accounts of God, but to himself, to Jesus, as the one in and as whom God was now calling Israel to repentance. End quote. That's what offended them. Notice how often throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has made himself the center of what he says. Jesus does not want us to walk away thinking that his message to us is to set our spiritual record straight by doing a bunch of good works. He wants us to trust and believe that he is God's son. He wants us in relationship with him. He's already done this twice in just the two paragraphs we looked at today. He names himself as the judge at the end of history. He puts himself in the place of God as the final judge. He then says that his words are the words that his hearers must follow. His words. To do the will of the Father in the first warning paragraph that we read is to follow the words of Jesus in the second paragraph. You see what he's doing. He's saying that to follow him is to follow the Father. To follow what he says is to believe that he is who he says he is. In other words, the identity of Jesus is the identity of God. So he's not only commanding us to do what he says, but to believe who he is. 
He's calling the crowds to himself. So we don't walk away simply hearing, Obey. Obey Jesus. The exclamation point, if there's one at the end of that, is Jesus. That's the point. This is why in verses 28 to 29, which go back to Matthew narrating the story, this is why the crowds were so astonished by him. It says, when Jesus finished these sayings, so everything that we've been doing the last three months, the whole Sermon on the Mount, when, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. They're beginning to recognize that he's not just your average teacher. While the other teachers of the day spoke with derived authority, Jesus claims his own. The reason why they're so flabbergasted is how Jesus could dare say the things that he said. They were overwhelmed by who he was. And I was thinking, what do you, what do you think the conversations between a husband and wife would be like as they followed him down the mountain? Did they walk away from listening to the Sermon on the Mount simply with a list of things to do? Maybe it was like this. A man turns to his wife and says, You know, honey, I haven't told you, but I've been having a real trouble lately with lust, and I'm sorry. I'm going to try harder. Just got to quit it. I know we've been struggling lately communicating, but there's no way in the world that I'm going to give you a certificate of divorce after what Jesus said. Also, I know we've been worried a lot about bills, about having enough food for the future rainy season, but we've got to stop that. And also, there's that back room in the back of the house where we keep the brooms. I want to clean that out because we've got to privately pray back there. We don't want to pray in the marketplace like we usually do. That's, that's super hypocritical of us. Sheesh, and we, and we really need to forgive Barnabas next door for cussing us out for the late night dinner parties. Otherwise, we're in real trouble. The father won't even forgive us. And look, here comes a Roman guard. I knew I shouldn't have worn this cloak. That's not how the conversation would go. That's not how the conversation would go. It may have been more like this. Babe, can you believe, can you believe that Jesus took the sacred law of God, quoted it, and instead of using the authority of that, he spoke with his own? I mean, he kept saying, I say to you, but I say to you, but I say to you, as if he was greater than Moses or even as if he was God. Remember how earlier in the talk he said he was the fulfillment of the law? What in the world was that? What audacity for him to say that he is the one at the end of history who is the judge, who is the one who has the power to determine who enters the kingdom of heaven or not. And the way he ended the sermon, making it sound like following what he said had as much significance for our lives as following what God said. Who does he think he is? Could this be the one we have been waiting for? And so I think this is the key for us. We shouldn't walk away from these words of Jesus thinking, well, I've got to go do a bunch of stuff now. I've got to get right with Jesus. No, you need to walk away amazed by Jesus, stunned by who he is, trusting that he is who he says he is, you can try to follow what he says, but you will not be able to do it perfectly. That's why he always drives right at the heart every single time. It can't be performed externally alone. 
You must believe in who He says He is. That He is the one who came to save sinners. What Jesus says about doing what He says is that we can only do what He says when we believe who He is. You must build your life on His person and His work, not yourself and your works. As we read in Second Samuel, and how neat to hear what Bob had said earlier. There is only one rock of deliverance. There's only one rock of salvation. There's only one refuge from the storm. It's Jesus, the God-man. We should leave the Sermon on the Mount convicted. We should. But it should drive us to another mountain. The Mount of Olives, where Jesus and his twelve disciples went right after he ate a meal with them calling bread his body and wine his blood shed for the forgiveness of their sins. So our hope is not in following the Sermon on the Mount to a T. That is not our hope. Our hope is in entrusting ourselves to the one who died to forgive our sins. The Sermon on the Mount is ultimately about who Jesus is more than it's about you and your sinful shortcomings. It's meant to It's meant for us to follow him all the way, all the way from the Sermon on the Mount to the Mount of Crucifixion where he takes away the sins of the world. As that old Welsh revival hymn puts it, on the Mount of Crucifixion, fountains opened deep and wide. Through the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide Grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above and heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. The only hope for your and I's incessant sin is the even more, even more abundant, incessant mercy of Jesus. No one that trusts the mercy of Christ will ever hear him say, depart from me. If you put your faith in Jesus, the floodgates of God's mercy in his crucified cry, it is finished, are yours to swim in forever. Come on up.
shed for us his precious blood who his love will not remember who can cease to sing his praise he can never be forgotten throughout hell eternal day on the mount of crucifixion fountains open deep and wide through the flood gates of god's mercy flowed a vast and gracious time grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love Let me all thy love accepting love thee ever all my days. Let me seek thy kingdom only and my life be to thy praise. And thou alone shall be my glory. Nothing in this world I see. Thou hast cleansed and sanctified me. Thou thyself hast set me free. First Corinthians eleven, twenty-three to 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.
Thank you for your words, Jesus, to us. Thank you for your death and your resurrection. Thank you that you are not only the judge, but the Savior. Remind us of that. Empower us with that. In Jesus' name. going to sing one more song and then afterwards if you guys want to head next door have some refreshments and some fellowship you're more than welcome this one's a little rowdy so let's get up and make some noise Come set your rule and reign in our hearts again. Increase in us, we pray. Unveil why we're made. Come set our hearts ablaze with hope like wildfire in our very souls. Holy Spirit, come invade us now. And we are your church, and we need your power in our We seek your kingdom first, we hunger and we thirst, refuse to waste our lives for your our joy and prize. To see the captive hearts released, the poor at peace. We lay down our lives for heaven's cause. We're your church, and we are your church. And we pray, revive this earth. And build your kingdom here. Let the darkness fear. Show your mighty hand. Heal our streets and land. Set your church on fire. Win this nation and back. Change the atmosphere. Build your kingdom here. We pray. Unleash your kingdom's power. Unleash your kingdom's power. Reaching the near and far. No force of hell can stop. Your beauty changing hearts. You made us for much more than this. Awake the kingdom seed in us. Fill us with the strength and love of Christ. And we are your church. And we are the hope of earth. And build your kingdom here. 
Let the darkness fear. Show your mighty hand. Heal our streets and land. Set your church on fire. Win this nation back. Change the atmosphere. Build your kingdom here. We pray.